Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, May 23rd, 2016. This is episode 1792 of the Survival Podcast. You know me and number recognition. I just want to kind of point out that when we do today's history segment, It will be 300 years from the year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Now, we all know that's not the very first uh, connection between Europe and uh, North America, but it is when the age of exploration really did begin. And, and it's kind of interesting to think about it being three centuries and how much has actually happened in the history segment between then and now. It's actually quite staggering. But before we have the history segment, of course, I got to tell you what today's show is going to be about. Now, you know sort of what it's going to be about because, well, it's about you. That's what it's about because this is a listener feedback show. And uh, I've got a bunch of great stuff for you guys today. Um, lead story today is actually about college enrollment. It's down. It's down a lot. Uh, it peaked in 2010, and it's been waning ever so slightly ever since, and Gee, now they're just starting to talk about it. I'm going to tell you why I'm not surprised, but what it really means and what's coming because of it and why it's good and bad at the same time. Uh, next, I have just a real quick story for you from a guy that spoke to a politician about how politicians view job security. It's not surprising either. Um, next one, I have a question from someone that says, we want to do homeschooling. But unlike a question that I would kick to Mike and Sue LaPriest for expert counsel questions, it's more about economics and dealing with lifestyle change. So I'm going to address that because it is a huge lifestyle change, and it is a huge economic change when you go from a two-income family to one-income family, or even if you go to a position where one of, the, one of the parents is working a lot less or making a lot less money working from home, doing some contract work, things like that. Uh, and that can be scary, and I certainly understand it. I, I'll admit, if we had decided to do this at certain times in our career pathways, it would have been very difficult. There were other times when it would have been relatively easy. And we weren't even thinking about that back then. I kind of tells me how far I've come with understanding the systems over the years. Um, next, totally different thing. Guy has a car and wants to know, hey, I can't put a you know a freaking what do you call it like a bumper mounted winch on this thing. How, what should I carry with me so if I get stuck, I can get out, or I can help other people get out? Uh, I have some good advice on that for you, and it's a good thing to think about vehicle mobility because your vehicles are all, you know, it's all great and fun and games until it doesn't go. And if you're just stuck sitting there, how do you get it out, especially when it's not as easy as you know, a couple of people just giving it a push? Uh, next up, we have a question about setting up an outdoor kitchen in a remote property, so someplace you're not there all the time, and how to do that. Uh, I have a couple different reports from listeners who have been using Dr. Christopher's tissue and bone salve, and I think you'll find it very interesting what they have to say. I am completely sold on the product at this point. Uh, but just a quick you know, anecdotal story from two different listeners with two different injuries, with two different results, actually very similar results, quite positive. Um, and then I have a comment from a listener about a conversation he had with two young members of our millennial generation about firearms. And it, I think it is more, more common than you might think, and it is bad news for gun rights long term. 
and I'll talk about how I view that and what I think we need to do to change that because I, I believe that so many people are afraid they're going to take our guns away. I feel like in another generation's time, if we don't do something, the people will give their guns away. There might be some old farts like me still hanging on, but I'll be in my 60s, and a lot of you guys will be older than me. And uh, I really think this next generation and the one coming after it will just give them away if we don't do something. So I'm going to talk about that. And then I'm going to bring you another story about the CDC. Remember, recently I told you the CDC is lying, lying about their own study in relation to vaccines from 2004. It's kind of comical. I keep getting people emailing me attacking Andrew Wakefield, Do you guys know what ad hominem means? The movie Vax that I recommended people see? Not about Andrew Wakefield's study, which, by the way, was also not about vaccines and autism. It was a corollary notice that led him down a path. But the movie Vax is about the CDC lying about its own study. In paperwork, you can get for yourself and review it. And nobody who's ever ever whined and cried to me about how wrong I am for pointing this out has actually gone through the paperwork. They might have read somebody else's opinion of it, but go get the documents and examine the fraud for yourself. But I'm not going to talk about vaccines today. I'm really not. I'm going to talk about cholera. Cholera in Haiti, and another time the CDC lied. In fact, they're still actively lying five years into it. It's a pretty interesting takeaway there. So that's what we have on the agenda for today. Before we get into all that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1792. As I said, 300 years has gone by since uh, Columbus's first voyages to the, as they called it, New World. I have Paris in the spring and guillotines. I have the New York Stock Exchange and the U.S. Mint are established. And I have Let There Be Light, Heat, And high-speed communications. That's actually several bullet points, but they're the ones I'm going to read because, well, I think they're really interesting. William Murdoch applies gaslighting to his own home. He is using coal gas, later called town gas, which is a byproduct of the coking process. By 1850s, town gas will be used for cooking and heating, too. It will be supplemented with natural gas in the 1890s. Town gas will be replaced by natural gas in the 1960s. The first blast furnace in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is built. Significant iron smelting won't start until after World, the War of 1812, when there will be a serious shortage of refined metal coming from Great Britain. It will take a while to resume trade after the war. And semaphore towers allow high-speed communication over long distances in France. The semaphores have large arms with paddles, and they are mechanically manipulated. Relay stations are set up for longer distances. In less than 20 years, the heliograph will be invented using sun and mirrors and the electric tel electrical telegraph. We are on our way. It's pretty amazing the advancements, how quick they come from this point forward in history. It, it really is. And uh, so those are just some examples. Now, the semaphore towers are something I never really thought about. I guess I've seen anecdotal things from them over time. There's many different versions of them from different countries until these uh, more effective methods of long-distance communication came up. But they're basically these towers you can see for a long distance. And one tag tower will create, through manipulation of whatever's sticking out of it, I've seen paddles and all different kinds of ways that these things have worked, uh, a message through how it's manipulated. And if you got to go further, well, then there'll be another tower that will receive that message and retransmit it, which will hop to another one and hop to another one. And you think about that being, you know, maybe not the most efficient thing, but let's go back to 1792. 
Let's go back to 1792 and think about what that would mean in repelling an invasion. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that you know Paul Revere went riding through the countryside on his horse, telling everybody that the British are coming. What if they had, what if they had semaphore towers? You know, instead of just the one candle in the window, right? Uh, what if there were actually some sort of light-based semaphore towers that could have been used to spread that message much more quickly and efficiently? Might that even have given the colonists even greater advantage? Or if the British had such technology, might it have given them advantage? It's an interesting thing. We take for granted how easy it is to communicate across distances today because everybody's walking around with a device that uh, fits in the palm of your hand that has more computing power in it than the entire computer banks that were used to put a man on the moon in 1969. It wasn't that long ago. Let me remind you again, between this year in history, 1792, and Columbus coming here was 300 years. Um, well, about 224 years between this time in history and now. Less time, and, and we have made these massive leaps forward. But that means it really wasn't that long ago that these things weren't quite possible. Do you remember? I just you know have a flashback here. I think a lot of people remember this if you're a kid from my generation anyway. Do you remember when somebody called long distance in the past? before cell phones and free long distance and everything. And it didn't matter what you were doing, you dropped everything to talk to somebody, and you were quick and, 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 and to the point when you were talking on long distance because it was so expensive. Do you remember when you couldn't even own your own phone? It's not that long ago. It was in the early 80s it was still like that. You didn't own the phone. You, you leased it from the phone company. And if you go into some old houses in certain parts of the country, uh, you'll still see at times things like the phone line for a line phone plugged into a jack with a little staple thing that actually prevented you from unplugging your own phone because they told you you could break things and cause problems and hurt stuff. It's preposterous, of course, but it's one of the ways they kept a communications monopoly for so long. But technology always causes changes. Think about that because we're going to talk about some massive ones today. With that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, have you ever thought about making a knife from scratch but just felt it was too complicated? Well, at KnifeKits.com, anyone can learn to make great knives, even me. From the total newbie to the master bladesmith, they have everything you need to make great knives, kydex sheaths, and more. Find it all at KnifeKits.com. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life, and the advice I gave most business owners every day was... Do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. All right, with that done, let's go ahead and get into our opening story today. Um, this is an article that someone sent me from CNN Money, and it says, College enrollment is dropping. Bad sign? Question mark. Well, of course, the mainstream would think this is a bad sign, and in some ways, it can be a bad sign, and we'll, we'll talk about that too, but I just think it's a natural evolution of technology. Anyway, U.S. college enrollment is falling. For years, America's college campuses swelled with more and more students, but enrollment peaked in 2010 at just over 21 million students. Attendance has dropped every year since. By the fall of 2014, the most recent year, government data is available. Just pause and think about that for a second. Our government's so smart that they can tell you what happened two years ago, but not what's going on right now with college enrollments. Okay. Anyway, there were 812,069 fewer students walking around college campuses in 2014. Some say not to worry the drop is happening because the economy is improving. More people are 
going back to work instead of signing up for additional degrees. Because that's what you do when you're out of work. You sign up for additional degrees. The one you have is not doing anything for you. So let's go get another one. Quote, historically, as the economy improves and Americans get back to work, college enrollment declines, says U.S. Undersecretary of Education Ted Mitchell. But here's what these young people are giving up. College graduates make almost double the salary of workers with only a high school diploma. If you care about the rise in inequality in America, declining college enrollment should alarm you. Good God, these people are so full of shit. Anyway, quote, a college degree is the surest ticket to the middle class. End quote. President, as clown Obama said last year, now there are 800,000 fewer Americans on that college path to the middle class. Can you tell that CNN is just like in the tank for the current administration? Isn't it great? Enrollment is falling fastest at these two schools. I think I should say two types of schools, but what do I know? I'm just a redneck duck farmer from Texas because it's not two schools. It's, it, it's a terrible subtitle. It really is. Dig a little deeper, and the data gets even more troubling. The two ty- there you go. The two types of colleges with the biggest declines in enrollment are community college and for-profit universities. Those schools draw heavily from low-income and minority households. College- community colleges are often lifelines for poor families. They're close to home. They don't require SAT scores, and they have cheap price tags. President Obama proposed making community colleges free for two years. Because they are a gateway to higher education. They're a gateway, all right. And better jobs for so many Americans. Since 2010, enrollment at community college has fallen by over 820,000 students. Yeah, you guys just listen to the numbers I'm going to give you here, and you're going to realize CNN money needs to work on doing some math in a second. Quote, I happen to think it's a very white middle-class value that you're going to learn so much if you go away to college and live on campus, says Dr. Selena Cunningham, a longtime educator who now runs Middle College National Consortium, a program in New York that encourages high school students to take community college classes. The enrollment deadline for four, the enrollment decline at for-profit institutions is different. Some for-profit schools have been criticized heavily for offering quote worthless degrees and quote leaving students with big debt. Yeah, because because the regular university system doesn't give people worthless degrees and leave them with big debt. My God. Finances are the top challenge. The overwhelming consensus is that America can and must do more to ensure that low-income and minority students can access college. The college enrollment drops since 2010 is the latest red flag that progress has stalled, if not retreated on this front. Quote, too many students and families feel the college is out of reach, says Mitchell, U.S. Undersecretary for Education. Quote, never in our history has the opportunity to complete college mattered so much to American lives, outcomes. Okay, I'm done. I can't read any more of this crap. Like... Okay, let me tell you what's really going on here, guys. Exactly what I said is going on here is going on. The beginning of the entire educational institution, as you know it, is caving in upon itself. People are not not going to college because they're going back to work. I don't know if you've looked at the job situation right now, but it sucks. It sucks in all but a few parts of the country. And, yes, the unemployment's down. Well, how did it get down? First of all, there's a whole bunch of shit jobs that don't pay jack diddly crap out there that people are taking now because they finally have to because their unemployment wore off. And a lot of people just didn't go back to work, and then they fell off the unemployment rules. So the decline in unemployment is complete and total bullshit. It really is. There's, there's, it, the economy is just as shitty as it was back in 2008, 2009 when it, when it shit a brick. And the only thing that you've seen that tells you otherwise is a, a fake decline in unemployment 
a massive amount of government money put into programs for food stamps and, 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 and stuff like that to keep people eating and, and off the street, you know, begging for food. And a absolute purchasing of an up stock market by the Federal Reserve through quantitative easing. That is all that has happened. Overall, the productivity of our economy is shit. And where we are increasing productivity and where we are increasing efficiency and where we are increasing profits, we have smart companies leveraging overseas labor and smart companies leveraging technology. Why are people going to college less? Because there's too many people out there with college degrees with no job. And you got young people going, you're going to tell me this is the most important thing I can do for myself, but I got two older brothers or an older brother, an older sister, whatever, that have a bachelor's degree that are working as a freaking bartender or a waitress or a waiter. So I don't believe you anymore. I don't believe you anymore. And this, this crap about America has to do, do more to get more people into college, and, and this shit about uh, college being free in Europe, it's all bullshit. Okay, first of all, there is no free lunch. It's not free. Somebody's paying for it. But here's the truth. Our enrollment in uh, colleges is higher than all of those countries. We send morons to college in this country. You can be an idiot and get into college. You can be a complete moron and get into college in this country, especially community college. So we have these countries that you hear are free. This is what happens. When you come out of high school, you're typecast. You're either qualified for your university or you're not. And no amount of money is going to change that. You don't get to go. You get thrown into a trade school or something like that. Or you're, you don't qualify for that. And you just set free. It's up to you. That's the truth. Well, what you're seeing now is, first of all, this is the problem. This is the problem. You're going to see a massive uptick in unemployment in the education sector. You're going to see big colleges within a decade condemning buildings. I'm telling you, this stupidity cannot continue. There is no need for most of these students that are in college today to have the expense of going somewhere or the inconvenience of going somewhere, especially when you talk about community college. You're talking about the, the first two years. Most of that stuff can be done online. Most of that stuff can definitely be done online. There's no need for the expense of these buildings, etc., all this other stuff. It just doesn't, it doesn't need to be there. Most big universities are not necessary. Now, STEM degrees and stuff like that, sciences and, and, and more specific types of degrees, there is a big case for some of that being done at like classroom level and labs and stuff like that. That makes sense. But it's a tenth of what we have now. We have a system that's become completely top-heavy, and it's been made top-heavy by the government helping, which means guaranteeing student loans that lock a person in to debt till they die if they don't pay it back. There's no escape, there's no bankruptcy, there's no way out of student loan debt. And they and they tell you to take it when you're a stupid freaking kid. And they tell you you're going to make double what that idiot over there that went to welding school is going to make. Bullshit. That kid who went to welding school has got a trade that's going to be valuable probably for the rest of his life. He can probably have his own business running in a couple years. And, and no matter what they do with automation, if you're a good welder, there's work for you. Because stuff breaks, and welders can fix it. And welders can fabricate things one-off, etc. Okay? Or make ten of something. You don't use automation to make ten of something. You use automation to make a million of something. Well, for now, anyway, 3D printing, etc. But we got a long way to go there. So one of the problems with this isn't this bullshit sob story that they're telling you here. It's what's going to happen to the economy 
is one of the largest sectors of economics in our country begins to cave in on itself. Because what you're going to see, you're gonna, and, and this is all crap. This, you know, for-profit school sucker or whatever. Well, they're, they're sucking the same government tit. Student loans, etc. Okay? Government money, uh, GI Bill, college funds, stuff like that. So they're playing the same game. What you're going to start seeing is more and more companies coming out as for-profit colleges. They just say, you know what, we don't give a shit about accreditation. We don't care. Because you can go to school for $2,000 a year. $2,000 a year for a four-year degree. And we're going to create our own accrediting. And, and, and we're going to, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to contact industry-leading companies like Google, like Microsoft, and say we're going to do a degree in some sort of computer discipline. And what do you want guaranteed that your graduates can have? And they're going to continue to develop the nano degrees where the guy says, well, we only need these 10 things. Well, screw a degree. Here's a specialty course. It's $1,500. Take it all online. If you need additional help, you pay for that. This is, this is what's going to happen. And it's already happening. And it's beginning to take away. What they're not doing, they're not, I guarantee you, in this, these numbers, they're not counting the person that comes out of high school, went to all the computer courses he could, and takes a nano degree and goes to work for Google. They're not, they're not counting those people who's going to college. And it's not college, so they shouldn't count them. So this, this giant apparatus has been built on phony money for decades now of lying to children. Just by going to college, you'll make twice as much as anybody that doesn't go to college. That's a load of bullshit. Do you know why that's the case? Because they include every person that didn't go to college in that number, and because of the way the system's been run, the, the kids that are smarter go to college. That smarter kid probably could have made just as much money without going in many situations. Now, again, there are disciplines in employment that you should have a degree for, that the only real pathway into them is through a degree. But they are a very small minority. We have sold, we have oversold the value of a degree, we've subsidized it and, and undervalued it while we've overpriced it for so long that system's collapsing. So the other thing that's a big problem here, <laughs> you know that student loan bubble they talk about? Let me explain to you what it really is. It's a Ponzi scheme. All of these debt traps are Ponzi schemes. The only way they remain sustainable is if you keep bringing more people in to take out new loans. I can't get into the economics of why that's true, but I'm going to tell you this. All of these lending institutions that are using the government to extort money out of these kids that they lend them money to, where they will garnish your Social Security wages before you escape student loan debt, if you cut off the new borrowing, they're done. They're done. They will start to implode and they will say, we need a bailout. And they will. And this is why they want to do free two years of college. It's not because they give a shit about your kids and they think that they have a right to an education, all this other bullshit. They're trying to save this institution, this institutionalized educational system. They're trying to save it because what I'm telling you isn't something they don't know. They know it's dying and they don't want it to die because it's their mechanism of control. What you're going to see come out the other end of this is a truly market-based, democratic-based, democratic in the best way, and I'll explain that in a second, educational system. What I mean by democratic is not people vote on it. I mean that you vote with your choice of how you receive your education. Truly democratic systems are market-based. Democracy can be a system of control. The majority as a tyranny over the minority. 
But if you allow market-based, market-based democracy, every time you spend a dollar, every time you dedicate your time, you're making a vote to what you really want. When you choose to listen to me versus CNN, you're making a choice and you're making a vote. When you choose to support a small company over a giant mega corporation, you're making a vote. You're making a choice. Well, what's going to happen is in almost no time at all, your educational opportunities are going to become limitless and dirt cheap. And when that happens, when that happens, it's over for the old dinosaur institution. And it's coming very, very swiftly. And they know it. And that's why they're trying to, it's basically CPR. If we get the government paying for everybody to go to community college, then we, 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 we get a whole bunch of new people that are going to come out and want to go for two more years to get that advanced degree, to get that bachelor's, right? And that refills the funnel. It's like the pension bust that John Pugliano talked about on Friday. They're trying to reprime the pump. Good luck, guys. It's a dead duck. Next segment's going to be really, really quick, but it just it goes to show you guys that, that have this, well, we can vote the bums out mentality when it comes to uh, politicians, even local politicians. Uh, this is from Brian in Tennessee. He says, Jack, I was at a local fundraiser recently when the county's property tax assessor came by to campaign for a bit of his upcoming election. In the course of the discussion, it came up that he's been assessor for this county for 40 years. After he'd been there for a while, most people there were from a county a few hundred feet away, he began to relax and tell some stories. He related a story once when someone asked him, or another politician he knew, if he got nervous running for office and knowing that every four years he could lose his job. He responded, oh no, not at all. Then asked many people how many people it took for the questioner to get fired from his job. The, request, the, the questioner responded, of course, one person could fire him from his job. The politician responded that it took a couple thousand people to fire him. I remember this as I got an increased assessment on my property yesterday. Yep. That's how they think once they get into these positions, especially when you get into a position in any kind of a district that's been successfully gerrymandered to lock in a party. And people say, well, you know, vote them out in the primaries or whatever. Who's your who's your tax assessor? What's their name? Some of you know, because you just got a letter, so it's kind of fresh in your mind. Most people don't know. Do you know how many of these local positions there are? People don't have time. And I know what people will say is, well, you know, you got to make time. What's important to you is what's... A no, you don't have time. That's what they're relying on. They know you don't have time. You're too busy trying to figure out how to pay off your student loan debt and get a job with the degree they promised you was going to make you earn twice as much as a guy that didn't go to college while he's out making money welding shit. right? You don't have time to find out who's running for all of these positions. So what do people do? People talk about being independents all the time, but this is basically what they do. Even if they are independent voters at things like their state rep, their federal rep, their senators, and the president, they, they come down on one side or other of the false dichotomy, Democrat or Republican, and when they don't know, they just vote for the party of their choice. That, that's what they do. They either split ticket or they straight ticket. And then on the, on, when they split ticket, they pick and they just say Democrat, 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 or Republican, Republican, Republican. These guys know this and they get into these positions. It's staggering, actually. If you look at a ballot, if you go vote, 
this time, or just request a copy of the ballot in advance so you can see who's on it. Just look at how many people you're electing. Now, I, I know you think that's a good thing, some of you, because, see, I get a voice, I get a choice. No, you got to think about it this way. Every single one of those people has power and authority over your life. How many people do we really need to have power and authority over our lives? Let it sink in. And this is how they think. It takes several thousand of you at least to fire them. So they really don't give a shit. Let's take another one. Here's a, a really interesting one, and I don't know how much help I'm going to be, but I just felt compelled to answer this one. It comes from Megan. Megan says, Hi, Jack. I'm taking over planning the transition of pulling my kids out of government schools. Just want to say something to you, Megan. Thank you for calling it what it is. Remember, guys, no more public schools. Kohl's is a public store. Albertsons is a public supermarket. Schools are not public schools. They're government schools. A public business is something that people can go to. Go try to go to your school without following specific procedures to be able to do so. We just recently had parents told they couldn't pick their kids up and walk them home from school by a school in Texas. Okay? They're not public schools. They're government schools. Thank you, Megan, for following me on my request. And I want everybody to start using the word government schools when you're told, well, my kids go to public schools. Just correct your friend and say, oh, you mean government school. All right, and explain the difference. Just because just using the words changes the perception. Okay. Pulling my kids out of government schools with my husband to give them more freedom and less stress and more skills. My second grader, at least twice a week, goes to the school nurse because her stomach hurts. It's likely stress. We're currently caught in the two-income trap, and we're working our way out of debt. In order to change what we are doing, I will have to make a radical change and basically change everything for my family, moving to a more affordable house and perhaps not a good neighborhood, losing an income, etc., which is all scary. Any recommendations in dealing with this fear of change to be able to move forward with joy instead of fear of the unknown? All right, Megan, I want to kind of point something ironic out to you. A lot of not-so-good neighborhoods, if your kids are in government school, become pretty good neighborhoods if your kids are not in government school. Here's what I mean by that. The school that, that, that I would have, if I had children of school age, that they would go to from where I live right now isn't a great school. It's not an awful school. It's not like people are being knifed in it every day or anything. But it's not a good school. And if I was a parent like I used to be, and I had, or I used to be, I, like if I was a parent of a, a school age child like I used to be, and I still had children under my roof and I was going to have to send them to government schools, I would have had to think really hard about choosing this home, which is very affordable, by the way, for what it is, if those kids were going to be going to school there. But since that's not the case, I really don't give a damn. I actually care what the neighborhood really is like versus what the school district's like. So one of the big things that's an advantage for you if you are a homeschooling parent is you can actually judge the neighborhood the house, the quality of life, where you're living, based on everything except the school district. Now, it is absolutely a fact that that does harm potential resale value of the home, which is why you always negotiate well, buy smart, etc. But it's equal. It's equalized because it, you don't need to sell for more if you paid less in the beginning, if that makes sense. So, yes... 
you might have two houses that are almost identical in very similar neighborhoods, one with a better school district in some measurable way by whatever that means. Because what it means to me is they're you know better at what? Indoctrination, programming, you know, forced memorization, control, manipulation, which whatever they're better at, right? Measurable. Now, if the one house is going to be let's say a hundred and ten thousand, and the one with the better school district is going to be a hundred and fifty. If when you go to sell them five years later, they've both appreciated by $25,000, it's no different to you. It's the same amount of profit. In fact, you'll probably make more profit because it's easier to amortize the smaller debt. In other words, you can pay it off early easier because there's less underlying principal. So that's that's one way to think about this. Um, I think that I would be looking, if I was going to do this, I would be looking for quality of life at the home. So... I would be looking for a little bit more property and a little bit less house, which has always been my philosophy, by the way. Because with homeschooling, you can have so many outside things for your kids to do that are part of their education. Every homeschool family should have your kids gardening because there's so many lessons in life you can learn from that. So by, by taking your focus more on your quality of life in the home, what you define as good and not good changes. Now, that does not mitigate things like neighborhoods with criminal problems. All right? I mean, that's that's something you have to be very careful with where you choose where you're going to live. But as long as you can eliminate that concern, you buy a house that's in good repair on a piece of land where you can do things that are going to make your children's life fulfilled, again, you stop worrying about the school so much. The next thing to do is I think it's very important that we model the behavior we want to see in our children. And and my greatest wish in life right now for my son would be that he would realize the potential he has to become an entrepreneur, or even if he's going to stay employed, if he would start down an employment pathway that leads him toward eventually transitioning to entrepreneurship. So I think it makes a lot of sense for a homeschool parent to have a business. Because we want to teach our children to be entrepreneurial. Even if they end up getting a job at some point, every really happy homeschool family I know, the kids have little micro-businesses. So one of the best ways to, to get that behavior modeled in our children is to model it for them. So I think you should be thinking about how am I going to earn income from home. And if you take the... See, one of the things I think we need to do when we go into homeschooling our children, is figure out how many hours we actually need to spend with our children during the day and how many hours they need to spend in independent study and learning and development. That frees up mom or dad, whoever's staying home, or both of them for that matter, to actually pursue their own businesses or contract work and things like that. So I think it, w it would help a great deal if you could obtain some level of income. And I would look really for how you can do that as well. And a second grader, you know, it, the good news is they're not a kindergartner, right? They, they, a five-year-old requires a lot of attention just to, to keep them doing stuff, okay? Um, whereas when you have uh, a child that's, you know, like, you know, seven, eight, it's a little bit easier to kind of get them going on something and give them something to do for an hour. And, you know, there are things that you can do contract-wise if you have any individual skills that would be valuable to a company that you could be doing two to three hours of work a day. So that would be another thing that I would look at there. 
And then you need to factor in, well, what is your total total savings going to be? See, people think sending your kids to government school is free. It's not. Right, so you're pro- so part of moving to a place with you know not quite the as good at being government schools government schools is property taxes is generally lower, see because you're paying for that school district by living near it or in it. Um, you're, you're also in some way having to see to the care of your child, and, and m- many parents are spending money to do that. For you know, a couple hours at least of childcare every day, you have a second grader and you say kids. So I don't know if your other kids are older, younger. Sometimes the older children are home. For, usually that's the way they do government schools, right? The later grades get out earlier. So you know the the high schooler comes home and looks after the second grader. If you got that, I mean that's great. But you have that 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 interim time there where something needs to be done. And for many people, the expense of that. Is significant. Another place that one can save money when they do this is what kind of vehicle are you driving? Um, many times it makes sense to sell the vehicle and pick up something more affordable that's reliable, is like you know going to the store and back type of thing, and keeping one really good vehicle for the working parent because you're not on the road every day. You know what's your gas bill a month? I, I know a lot of Americans today are spending three to four hundred dollars or more. In, in gas to drive the work in back because they work fairly far from home. Well, if, whatever that number is, what's a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks, that's gone. We we don't need to be doing that anymore, and, and we really shouldn't be. I think one of the most con- conducive exercises you can do right now, which will also help build up um, some cash flow for you. Is figure out well what is my budget on my new my my, my different living condition and and then. So let's say that your current cost of living is $1,400 a month for your house or car or, I don't know, $2,000. I don't care what it is. But let's just say it's $2,000 a month in, in housing fees. And let's say you're going to be able to drop that down to $1,200. So it's $800. So obviously you have to keep paying that $800 now. But work out your new budget irrespective of that $800 and say, what are all the other things we're going to have to pay for? And start living on that money now. So live, go to a lower cost of living on everything except the house and see what it's like. Get that experience, especially right now. The kids are in summer vacation, right, or soon will be. So actually live as though you already were doing this for a while. That will help you figure out if your numbers actually work because if they don't, you can always bail yourself out. But try not to bail yourself out. Try to struggle through it and figure out how I can make it work. So it's the same way I advise people when they if they say they really want to learn how to trade stocks, right? Okay, well, paper trade, fake trade stocks for like six months, and and see what you would have done. And and I'll tell you whether you really want to do this or not before you start putting real money in. I also say reach out to the homeschooling groups in your area and in any area you're looking for houses uh, or rentals or what have you because. That may be a bigger reason for you to choose an area than what you used to look at, which would be how good is the school district? How good is the homeschool assistance in an area? And a lot of families that are doing this are very much wanting to encourage others. So by meeting people doing it already, you can say, I'm, you know, when you, you can tell them, honestly, I'm afraid about this. I don't have enough money. They went through it too. They can give you advice because they're actually living it. And they can help you maybe find that lower cost place to live and things like that. So reach out to the community. That, that's the best I can do. But I want to congratulate you for being willing to take the step. I don't think there's anything we can do to reclaim our sovereignty 
that's it's more noble and more effective than reclaiming the right to choose how our children are educated. For decades, we have given our children to the state for eight to nine hours a day for over 200 days a year and said, state, do with them as you will. The, re the, the, the generations we have in front of us today that can't think are a direct result of that. They're not supposed to think. They're supposed to do what they're told. They're supposed to think they're thinking, but not actually think. So congrats. I hope that helps you get off in kind of the right direction. Uh, next one's totally different. We have lots of variety today. John from North Alabama says, What are the best options for vehicle recovery if you don't have a bumper-mounted winch on a truck and for cars? What would be good to keep in the trunk to help others or have available if I need help? I'm thinking of tow straps and tow chains to get uh, a vehicle out of the ditch or stuck in snow or mud. I drove a Ford Crown Victoria with a tow hitch on my vehicle. I actually much over chains prefer tow straps because they're lighter weight, they take up less space, they're easier to use, and you can get them like 8,000 pound capacity. If you can't move something with 8,000 pound capacity, your Crown Vic ain't moving in no way anyway. Okay, that's four tons. So I would say to go toward the toe straps and away from the chains. And that's there's a million different places to buy them. They're available everywhere. They're all pretty much the same, right? But heavy, you know, eight thousand pound toe straps for that purpose, and to work in conjunction with what I'm going to advise you on next. The the most valuable thing you can have when you have a stuck vehicle is something called a cable puller or a come-along, okay? And there's a lot of them out there. There's a lot of okay ones. There's a lot of decent ones. There's a lot of shitty ones. There's a lot of total crap ones. And this is not something you want failing when you need it. For those that aren't familiar with what I'm talking about, basically you have a short cable with a hook on it, and then it goes to a, a set of gears with a lever that cranks kind of like a big ratchet strap, like for ratcheting stuff down, cargo strap, right? And at the other end, there'll be a cable that can come out and go six feet, eight feet, some number of feet out. And what you do is you take this come-along, is again what they're called, and we put something like one of those toe straps around a tree, some good strong anchor or another vehicle. And then we extend that cable and we attach it or we attach it to a toe strap attached to that vehicle, And then we start running it like almost like a jack, like and you just tink, tink, tink. And these things have a lot of pulling power. The one that I recommend actually is a four-ton puller. So we're talking about 8,000 pounds of force. Now you have to be a pretty big hoss to be able to actually get that out of it, but it has a tremendous amount of mechanical advantage. Here's the key when you and, and you know, vehicle recovery was a big part of my job in the military. I was a diesel mechanic. I also went to recovery school. So I actually went to school to learn how to get vehicles out. In most instances, not all instances, in most instances, a vehicle that's stuck only need move a few inches to become unstuck. And what happens is people get stuck and what do they do? They floor it. Don't do that. If you're stuck and that vehicle's not moving in either direction, And you start revving that tire, all you're going to do is dig a hole, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. If you take, because this is the thing, you want to help others, that's great. But let's just, right now, you're stuck, there's no one to help you. You have toe straps. What are you going to do, put them in your teeth like Charles Atlas and pull your car out? But if you have anything that you can anchor to, and this is why I like having multiple toe straps, because, yeah, that cable that comes out of come along might go six, eight feet, but... Again, we only need to move a few inches generally to get that vehicle out. So we take it, we get it locked up, we get it good, ready to go. 
We put the vehicle in neutral, and then we pull it a little bit with the tow strap. We go get in the vehicle. We see if the vehicle will come out of its predicament. If it won't, we give it a little bit more. This is all better with two people, but if you're alone, you can use a tow strap, uh, to, I mean, a, a cable puller and a tow strap to get out of being stuck. Where if you have tow straps and no other person, no other vehicle to help you, you can't get out. So there's two I actually recommend, and they are the best ones I have found. And I went on a quest to find the very best uh, come-alongs you can get your hands on. And what I found is from a company called Masdam, M-A-A-S-D-A-M. And they have a power pull, okay? It's P-O-W uh, apostrophe big R, right? Power pull. And the four-ton one is the best thing I have found, period, end of story. Uh, they're all made in the United States of America. This one's expensive, though. It's $181 bucks on Amazon. And the downside of it is it weighs about 35 pounds. So it's heavy and it's fairly large. But that's why it works. So that's one option. Masdam also makes a two-ton puller. And it's much smaller, much lighter, and it only sells for $44.20. Some of you know where this is going. If you don't have the space or the budget for the four-ton one, the big heavy-duty one, get two of the two tons. Often, it's actually a really great advantage to have two, cable, uh, two, two pullers in, in getting out of vehicles. So what I actually keep in my, my truck is a four-ton and a two-ton. Because sometimes a vehicle is kind of canted and you can actually move the front or the rear of the vehicle and, and gain advantage with multiple anchor points as you, as, you, as you extract a vehicle. Or you don't really need the big heavy stinking one so you get the smaller one uh, to do something else. So these I'm a big fan of if you can't tell. Like the concept as a whole, I've always had them, but when I found the Mazdam, I'm like, this is the stuff. And you will see mostly like 90% positive reviews on Amazon with these things. And I want to talk a little bit about critical thinking. You'll hear people say it didn't work or it got stuck or it, I don't like this about it. And what's clear if you read the review is they don't know what the hell they're doing. They don't know anything about the piece of equipment. You know, like that's not how it's intended to be used. You've exceeded the capacity of it. You're a tiny person and you don't have enough strength to actually use something that has this much capacity. Even though there's mechanical advantage, you're just a hundred pounds. I'm sorry. And you, 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 you know, you don't know how it works. So with that, if you're going to get a, a, um, uh, a, uh, a, a come along, right? What you need to do is you need to mock use it with your vehicle. You need to go set your vehicle somewhere that you can safely put it in neutral, put a put a block under it, get it hooked up, and uh, so a, a, a you know wheel block. Leave it in park until you're ready to actually use it, and hook it up somewhere with a tree where you can and learn to use it. Because this is the biggest thing you'll find when you're trying to recover vehicles. You will inevitably look for and have a hard time finding a good anchor point on the vehicle itself. Vehicles are not what they used to be. Everything used to be steel. There was always a big heavy bumper jack or something you can grab onto. A lot of vehicles today, it's hard to find places to actually pull the vehicle out. With my Jetta, for instance, 
they actually had on the front end two places you could see through the bumper, and there were actually places to screw in great big eye hooks. So if a tow truck driver came to tow that vehicle, one of the things in their kits is those big eye hooks, and you could screw them in, and then you had a great anchor point to get something like a clevis on it. Without that, that vehicle is actually very hard to pull. So you may find that you have a vehicle like that, and that that part actually is not very expensive. It might be $10, $20. You need that part to go with your recovery kit if you have that vehicle. Or you'll find, okay, there is a place, but this is where it gets kind of, you know, you can damage your vehicle. Yeah, there's a place up underneath it you can get that strap on and pull against the front, you know, front end of the frame. But what is going to happen is your strap or your cable is going to come up against the, the bumper shroud, and, and, and when you put all that pressure on it, it's going to break it or jack it up or dent it or something like that. So you also need with these things to be able you don't, what I'm getting at, you don't buy this, throw it in your trunk as part of your recovery kit and never have any experience with it. Because the time to get experience with it is When it's nice out, it's sunny, it's nice and windy, you don't have sweat all over your face, it's not muddy, you're not cold, your fingers don't hurt, you're not on the side of the road with, with big rigs flying past, you're scared shitless, or whatever it is, you're not out in the middle of the, uh, you know, you went backwood, you know, do some stuff in the backwoods, and now you're afraid you're going to be stuck there overnight. This is not the time to be using it for the first time. Now, let me tell you another reason I think everybody should own these. There are multiple uses for these besides vehicle recovery. One of the best uses for this And pros don't do this, but most of us aren't pros when it comes to felling trees. You have you drop a tree, and it doesn't come off the stump, and you have it bound up. Where if you start cutting, you're gonna you're gonna you get your bar bound up in the tree. You can't shove the tree off the stump, or other ways the trees get stuck. Well, with one of these, you can anchor to another tree, get far enough away that you're out of harm's way, run a couple toe straps if you have to, and pull the tree off the stump. That's just And you know what? If you're a pro, like a, 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 a pro logger, what, what guys will tell you to do that job, we don't have time for that. They have other ways to get that done. But this could save your life or save you from serious injury, for having it for that use. And there's just so many times when you might need to move something heavy, and as long as you have the equipment, these will do it for you. Another example, when my uncle shot his bear, this took a while, but he shot a very large black bear. And a, and a black bear, when you shoot it, is like jelly that's just really hard to move. And between he and I, it was down in this, this like hollow, and we couldn't get it up to the top where the road was. We just physically could not move the animal. So it took a while. We got to come along and to tink, to tink, to tink, to tink, to tink, and then braced it and then moved it up again and then to tink, to tink, six feet at a time. Six feet at a time. But once we got it to a certain point, where it wasn't so steep, then we were able to actually just drag the animal. Okay, so that's another example that a come-along will do for you. I just You can buy cheap ones. You can buy a come-along for $15, bucks. I don't recommend it. Generally, the big problems are the gears break, the cable snaps, uh, or they get jammed up. If you go with Mastam, you're not going to have that problem. As you might imagine, I have links to both of these power pullers in today's show notes. And I really recommend that if not now, you put this on, you know, when I did the 20 items you should have in your preps, I should have had this item on that list. I should have knocked something off it to put this on. So I appreciate this question because it made me, you know, go back and go, man, people need this. And I bet most of you don't have one. 
Or if you do, you have a cheap old one you've never used. And the first time you go to use it, when you pull it out, and it's going to get bound up and the cable's going to get bound up in it. And if you look at the reviews of the cheap ones that have a lot of negative reviews, the chief complaints are the gearing broke, the gearing stuck, the cable binded, right? I couldn't get the cable to come out in the first place. And some of it is you're stupid and you don't know how it works, you don't know how to hit the release. The release doesn't work right. Well, do you know how the release works? I don't know. No. But the cheap ones, all of those problems are legitimate. I used to have cheap ones myself. That's what everybody had in my family. We were kind of a poor family. So you just got the cheapest one you could. They got used over and over again, frayed and messed up. As I got older, spent time in the military, learned how important this equipment was. Um, I looked for the best I could find. There was an old model they don't make anymore that was my uh, go-to choice uh, for a long time. And uh, this Mastam product came out about 2006, 2007, somewhere there, and uh, became my go-to right away. So I really recommend it. This next one comes from my buddy Ashley. He's, uh, he's been with his daughter, Callie, to several of my events, and a uh, real good guy. Um, he says, uh, thanks for the show and the fantastic events you, uh, you do to promote liberty and personal responsibility. Question, what priorities would you suggest when establishing an outdoor kitchen on recreational land? Details, considering recreational land on which I might eventually build a cabin, but for now it's camping only. The first upgrades I'd like are outdoor cooking facilities and bathroom facilities. I'm happy sleeping in a tent much longer than I'd be happy cooking in a campfire on a backpacking stove. Uh, I'd like to get things to a point of spending two weeks there and leave family wanting to do it again soon after uh, rather than returning from home. Here's what I'm thinking. I'd love to hear what you might do differently or what I missed. My initial priorities were cooking without squatting and doing dishes. These both require water, which may initially be hauled in. And doing dishes requires heating the water. For cooking, I'm inclined to start with two-burner propane stove. The Camp Chef you recommend is fine. I already own one from Harbor Freight that I like, though I leave it home and use a couple rocket stoves, perhaps uh, built in five-gallon buckets. Uh, for doing dishes, uh, I think dish pans and uh, dish rack drainer like you use at TSP events are a perfectly adequate solution. Uh, the stoves provide a way to heat water, and though I may need a very big pot to heat in, I think a pot plus one big cast iron skillet is my minimum set, but I'd probably add a Dutch oven quickly. Naturally, I need eating and cooking utensils and plates and large bowls. My next priority is getting a stove and dishwashing set up high enough to be convenient. Costco folding tables are a quick solution, requiring owner only a minute or two and a level spot for. I'm tempted to build a more permanent table from a few dozen concrete blocks, perhaps a built-in pair of rocket stove burners rather than a bucket solution above. However, I might stay with folding tables longer to observe myself in the situation and experiment with arrangement before making anything permanent. I love that idea, by the way. Once we reach this point, I'd probably use it for a bit and see if the, what the friction is, but I expect I'd soon want to add a simple overhead structure for shade with a bonus water catchment, other cooking options, perhaps building into concrete block, uh, table counter mentioned earlier, uh, and suspend a water tank, a 55-gallon drum, and around head height to provide gravity-fed water. Thanks in advance for your input, AJ. So here's, I think you're on the right track, man. I really do. Um, here's what I would do if I was in this situation. Whatever I built, I would design it to be something that if somebody came by to damage it, they'd, they'd have to bring a sledgehammer or something, and it wouldn't be worth stealing. So... Maybe an overhead structure would be a little bit more likely to be possibly damaged. But what I would want first, before anything else, is 
a hard surface where it's not dirty and muddy. Whether that's done with gravel, whether you build it up, uh, it's just using dirt that's built up with you know, rocks as a retaining wall, whether it's poured concrete, I think it'd be one of the most valuable things you could have. Because you can, like you said, you can, you can bring everything with you to set up basically a washing station, a place to cook, etc., without being down on the ground. And as you built that, it would become a foundation. And then I think the idea of building basically a barbecue pit with maybe a built-in rocket stove burner or two out of center block makes sense. And it's very inexpensive to do. Center blocks are a couple bucks a piece. And a lot of times if you scour Craigslist, you can get a lot of them for free. Or if you're just driving around, you see a guy with a bunch of blocks laid up, you know, offering 50 cents a piece for him. A lot of times he'll take it. So, and that's, that's an easy project. It's a good project for you and your kiddo to do together. And so now we have basically a, a, a surface and we also have a place to cook. And if we can create an overhead structure, I, I'm all about that. This doesn't even have to be that expensive to be highly valuable. Um, we can set some four by fours and create an overhead roofing frame and put up the type of uh, roof material that you can buy, you know, by the, the 12 foot, eight or 12 foot strip at Home Depot and Lowe's. You may not want to buy, there's like, there's like the thin stuff like we use on the greenhouse here. Uh, and then there's like the heavier duty stuff that actually can go on the roof of a house. Since somebody might steal this, I would probably go with the cheaper stuff or go with metal. And that means now we have a place that we can stand that's not muddy. If it's raining, we're covered. It's shaded. And now when we go to set up our table for our washing station, okay, it's on not just level ground but solid ground. We want to think about drainage for that. And that's kind of the – I'm actually kicking this idea around, too, of picking up a piece of land. And I'm, I'm even considering doing it with, like, a group of guys, part of it for Granddaddy's Gun Club and part of it just for hunting. Uh, in fact, anybody in North Texas, if you're interested in talking to me about that, I'd love to hear from you because I'd like to set up maybe an LLP and go in with five or six people. We can leverage a lot more that way with it being a lot less expensive. And this would be kind of the way I'd think for a group camp facility. What we want is basically what we called in Panama a boquillo, right? Um, but one made of more permanent material instead of uh, you know palm thatching, which is how they made them down there. Basically, it's open on all four sides, but we have that roof covering for shade. And there's not a lot to be stolen then. And yes, building, like if I'm going to have a table that's going to stay out there, I'm going to build it out of concrete or blocks or something like that, bricks. Because that way no one's going to run off with it. And now we can bring in things like a grill burner and things like that. We can bring in, you know, you could, you, you, you know, what would be safe would be building basically a sink, like a fish cleaning station style sink. As far as elevating water, I think that there's a couple ways we can do this. Um, it would be great to have water catchment. Suspending that amount of water, though, significant amount of rain catch water. So there's water there because I'm, I'm taking you have a property. There's not water access on the property. So now we have a roof. It makes sense to put in some cheap gutters and plummet to you know some IBCs. But a 370-gallon IBC, for instance, with you know water being 8 pounds a gallon, it would be about 3,000, one and a half tons of weight. But what would make a lot of sense is to come up with some sort of a mechanical pump where we can move water from our water catchment. And yeah, putting something like a, a 30 or 50-gallon blue drum up 
uh, in the air and letting that provide water for us. Is there a risk that somebody could come steal that stuff? Yeah, but it's probably low. It's probably low, especially if we do a little bit to conceal its existence and things like that. Now, the problem is that structure is, is probably likely to attack, attract attention. But one thing I've learned in Texas is people are pretty hesitant to go on private land in Texas because there's a chance you'll get shot, and people do know that, especially for an IBC tote. It's plumbed already. You gotta, you know, it's just not worth it to most people. So that's what you want to do is you want anything that's left on a piece of remote land to look like it's not worth it. Now, my suggestion would be if you'd like to store materials there, that would be things that that, uh, that 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 people might try to steal. Create some sort of hidden underground cache or something like that. If you want to leave pots, pans, stuff like that behind, something waterproof but hidden, and I would not put it right next to this structure. Um, but this is this is kind of my, my vision, what I would do. I would try to probably build everything out of, of cinder block. And you could build a pretty nice sink setup like that as well. Um, and then if you do that, you're not bringing these tables in. You could bring it, you could build basically a, a table and, and places where you can Uh, set things up. You know, another thing you can do is you can build basically your, uh, like your, let's say you wanted to have an area for food prep, okay? And basically you just build two small center block walls. And then what you do is you, you pour concrete down your center block walls and you take a piece of all thread and you stick that in the concrete so it's sticking up out of the top. Just, just enough to, you know, maybe, uh, penetrate a little bit beyond a uh, piece of three quarter, uh, exterior grade plywood. Okay? And then we take a piece of three quarter exterior grade plywood, drill some holes in it, pop it over to that all thread and bolt it down. So now, could somebody come unbolt that and steal that piece of plywood? Sure. What are you out? You're out of piece of plywood. But now we've got a nice flat surface. And, you know, if we, uh, decide we want to, we can make that out of some other, Material that's maybe more conducive for, you know, working on food prep and all. But we can take it away if we want to. We can hide it if we're really worried about it. But if it wears out, we just cut another piece of plywood, drill some holes. In fact, we take the old one off and we use it as a template so we don't even have to worry about marking our holes very well. Plop it on there and throw a couple bolts on it. And now we've got this nice, sturdy table. And we're not really worried about it disappearing because it's concrete to the ground. So then we can possibly put in another little area and cut a hole in our plywood and drop a sink in there, a cheap sink. Somebody steals their sink, it's not that big a deal. Now we have a sink for washing. We use a bucket for drainage, and we have a place to dump it somewhere else when we're done with it. This is the kind of like remote campsite I, I, I'm actually thinking very much so about setting up myself now. It's funny you ask this because it's exactly where I'm, I'm going with this. If I can find the right piece of land either by with a group or by, by myself – then I want exactly this type of infrastructure in place. I don't see myself, unless I know I'm going to be out there very, very frequently, putting in a cabin. Because a cabin is something that people are going to come want to break into, want to steal from, where if you just have basically like, you know, this, you know, structure that's just basically, a lot of people would look at it, and you know what they'd think? This was abandoned, if you do it right. This is just useless. Because they don't understand the functionality of it. So I think there's a lot that can be done there. You know, you can keep some wood up under it so it stays dry, things like that. Um, but just remember that anytime you put something on remote property, odds are that it can either be stolen or vandalized. 
And, and it's it, it's amazing. There's a lot of scum out there that they're not in it for money at all. They just like to bust shit and, and destroy shit. And, and those type of people really need their ass handed to them. But the problem is you're off doing your job during the week and somebody's out running around on a four-wheeler uh, where they're not supposed to be. So, uh, you know, another thing is make sure that you, wherever your piece of land is, if there's road access, locate this structure pretty far from the road. Because it's less likely to, to attract the person that wants to do like the quick scouting. Oh, I saw that. I'm going to run over there and see what's going on type of thing. Uh, so try to make it in, in, inconspicuous if you can, based on what it is. Another thing that I would definitely recommend people consider with remote land is putting in some surface water. You know, a, a small tank. Now, this obviously is not water that you're going to be able to drink. But it can be used for a lot of other things, especially if it's boiled. It can certainly be used for washing uh, dishes. It can be used for scrubbing down your hard surface, what have you. Um, again, if it's nasty water, you can't wash dishes with it without boiling it. But it, it is usable for a lot of things. It can be, um, you know, another thing I would think about is being able to take a shower. So with water catch, that, that gives you the opportunity then to actually be able to use things like just simple solar showers. Like the easiest thing you can do short term, they make these solar showers that are basically a black bag. You fill them up with a couple gallons of water, you hang them up, and you're able to take a shower. So maybe creating some place, if you're going to have family out there, you know, little kind of privacy area and stuff like that, place to use the bathroom. I mean, it's kind of gross, but I'll tell you what we did in Honduras is we sunk PVC pipes in the ground, put lime around them and a piece of screen over them, and you peed in it. That's not going to work good for the girls, though, right? So come up with some sort of a composting situation for your bathroom I think would be important, too. Because people say, well, that's not really about food prep, but hygiene is very important with food prep. And, you, you know, we all heard, you know, don't don't crap where you live. Well, the reality is we all have to, right? Because the real story is uh, don't crap in your own backyard, right? So... In, the es in essence, it's what you have to do because we can't take a ride down the road 20 miles every time we have to go to the bathroom. So that is a big part of the sanitation for your cooking as well. I'm going to give this one more thought. I'm actually thinking one day I might actually do a whole show on this one subject. I think it would be interesting. Maybe we'll put it, if I have more time to think about it and lay it out in my head, uh, maybe put it on the docket for July's Tuesday shows. Remember, you can vote on the Tuesday shows. There will be a link in today's show notes for June. And we are rapidly approaching June. We are, what, seven days away? So make sure you vote for the shows in June. Uh, let's take another one. Um, this comes from Bill. Bill just says, thanks for the tip on the podcast about Dr. Christopher's formula, complete tissue and bone ointment. Really messed up my shoulder bowling. Rather than do the doctor and pill route, I tried this. Within a couple days, I noticed improvement, and it's steadily healed. Thanks for all you do. I'll keep this stuff around. Um, so, so Bill has to say, Jake Robinson, Prepper Survivor on Zello, um, posted a, a couple days ago on Facebook. He had actually cracked a couple ribs and began using this on his ribs and, and got good enough results that he posted that happened. And as like a thank you, he posted the link to Amazon with my affiliate link because he was like, you know, dude, this helped. So those are two, at least, and there's been more people that have wrote in about that stuff. Um, one of the folk uh, medicine names for comfrey is called bone knit or bone set. And it's been used for a very long time on hairline fractures and things like that by folk healers because it works. 
Um, the Dr. Christopher's formula is comfrey, it's plantain, it's white oak, it's some other things. Um, I'll say it again. I really think the reason I'm not ending up in a you know orthopedic surgeon's uh, table having my knee worked on after what happened to it is because I use this stuff. And uh, I still have some pain in it with certain activities, like stairs are the ones that get me still to this day. But other than that, I mean, I'm out and about every day, and I, I forget about it. Uh, and what I what I need to do, and what I, I haven't been doing lately, is I need to continue to apply that uh, as the healing continues. Because since I'm not in any pain, I don't even think about it unless I run up the stairs. I'm like, oh yeah, I got to be careful. Or the other day when I had to get out of the truck, and I was thinking about doing what I used to, do, which is just jump out of the, you know, like vault over the the, the side of the truck and just kind of land. And I'm like, well, dude, you shouldn't do that. Climb down the tire. You know, I, I hate feeling that way because I I like being agile, but. Uh, you got to take care of yourself. But this stuff works. I'll have a link in the show notes. I've said this before. This stuff belongs in your preps. Um, I've used it for a lot of other things, too. Uh, the other day I was out working in my quail aviary, and there was a uh, rough piece of 2x4 that I, when I was reaching for one of the birds trying to get away, I reached up and grabbed it with one hand so I could support myself as I tried to catch him down in the corner and move him to his new location. And uh, which was basically graduating to deliciousness, so he didn't want to go, and I don't blame him. But I got a splinter, and it was like one of those sharp splinters where it, like it cuts you almost like a paper cut, and uh, it was like, man, that kind of stings, you know. And uh, so I cleaned it out, and I started applying that salve to it, and I mean, it healed in a day or two, like perfectly, you know, no scar, no nothing. It was kind of a ripped cut too. Now it's a shallow cut. Remember, comfrey does not go on deep wounds. You can actually seal infections in. That's the one big thing there. But you know, painful uh, joints, injury sprains, uh, hairline fractures, things like that. I can't see this stuff not being valuable to you. I recommend that it's in your kit. Again, it's called Dr. Christopher's uh, Complete Tissue and Bone Formula. And I do have a link in the show notes for you today for that one. This next one kind of really... I know this, but I don't think about it a lot because it's depressing. This is from Tammy in Georgia. She said, Jack, I work in a cubicle with two very intelligent, highly educated, caring millennials. They literally said today that they could not imagine ever needing a gun for protection. They were serious. We weren't in an argument or a debate. I asked the one with a pregnant wife if he would use a gun to protect his wife and child. He said there would not be time to get it out and use it if something happened. He was absolutely serious. He also said he wouldn't shoot a home invader. He has insurance, and the intruder could just have whatever they want. I was speechless. Anyway, I knew you would understand. I understand, but I don't like it. And, and this is my big concern for gun rights. This is not atypical of this generation. Children today, from about 5 up to about 30 as young adults, the vast majority don't understand guns, they're afraid of guns, what they believe about guns is not true. Um, I saw this in one of my, my son's friends, who would be about 26, like my son is now. He came over to our house, this when we lived in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, with a million deer hunters, by the way, in a rural community, not, you know, not like, uh, you know, West End of Philly or something like that. And I was reloading. He was afraid to touch the gunpowder because he thought it was hot and it would burn him. He was like 13 years old. Thought gunpowder would burn him if he touched it. Um, what's been done 
is a combination of things. One, Hollywood has continued to make guns look far more powerful than they are. We've seen this forever, but it's gotten worse and worse. Kids get you see a guy gets shot on TV, blows him back 20 feet. 20 feet backwards. Boom! Yeah, it doesn't happen. I mean, Mythbusters proved this. They they put a pig, a 200-pound pig, barely held on a hook where you could just punch it and knock it off. They shot it with a 44 Magnum. It didn't move. They shot it with a bunch of different things. The only thing that actually knocked it off the hook, and I mean, it just barely fell off the hook, was a shotgun slug. Gave enough kinetic energy dump that it actually, you know, pushed it off the thing. So they, the one thing they've done is they've convinced these kids that guns are like, you know, like, like something that blows everything up. Then with the video games, you know, they get these guns that shoot forever and stuff, and they, in their head, that's how they think of guns. And then the educational system has taught them guns are scary, guns are dangerous. You, if you see a gun, you got to tell, you know, not if you find a gun laying on a street, tell an adult. Well, of course you would. My generation was taught that. But if you see a gun ever, tell somebody. So a kid goes over to his friend's house, and dad's got, you know, a gun cabinet, and he runs, there's guns at this guy's house, you know. And I see this, like, there was a report out recently of a guy that was working as a contractor. I don't know if it was a plumber or a drywall guy or something like that, but he's working at this guy's house. So he happens to notice in his closet the guy has four or five rifles in the closet. He calls the police because the guy has guns. And, of course, the police come out to see what's going on, and the guy's like, yeah, I got guns. They're my guns. They're in my closet. And the guy that made the call couldn't understand that it was okay for this guy to just have guns. And so this, this whole thing has been propaganda, media spin. It's been seriously pushed in the educational environment. Kids are being told, basically, your parents are bad people if they have guns in schools today. So by the time these kids come out the end of this indoctrination from the government schools and the media, they literally have a fear of guns, a complete misconception of what a gun is and what it's capable of. And they say stupid things like, well, if somebody was trying to hurt my wife and child, there wouldn't be time to get it out. Are you? I mean, I'd love to talk to this young man and say, what do you base that assumption on? How did you come to this conclusion? There wouldn't be time to get it out. Let me tell you what there might be time for. You just sit there and watch a guy that beats the piss out of you and then lays it in front of you and rapes your wife in front of you or your kid in front of you. There'll be time for that because you aren't willing to be willing to do what's necessary to protect your family. Okay? That's the truth. And if you don't think that happens, you ain't been paying attention for the last 50 years in this country of what goes on when people invade homes. And if you don't think there's ever been a time where a guy's been beaten down and then forced to watch another man rape his wife, you are not paying attention because it has happened. That's just one thing that could happen. And it just keeps, I mean, there's so many examples of it. There was a guy that used to work for me in sales named Brad. He was from Massachusetts. And, uh, which, by the way, other than Boston, huge hunting tradition up there. And it was, it was during the time that they were talking about letting the assault weapons ban expire, which they did. And he thought that was a bad idea because assault weapons were really powerful. Well, what do you mean? Oh, they're, they're much more powerful than guns you use to shoot a deer. Really? What do you base this on? Well, I gotta believe there's something about them that makes them assault weapons. So I'm like, you know, an AR-15 that has a 223 round in it, which you, like, you're, you might as well have been saying the space probe that landed on Mars, you know, to this guy, because he didn't have any idea. But he did understand the basic concept that my deer rifle is far more powerful than that gun. 
He couldn't understand that. They're calling it an assault rifle because it's capable of being fired a lot of times by pulling the trigger. He goes, like a machine gun. I'm like, no, a machine gun is where you pull the trigger and it just keeps shooting. This is a gun, you pull the trigger, you shoot, you pull the trigger, you shoot. Oh, well, they don't have hunting guns like that. Actually, they do that are more powerful than this. Get a Remington 740 in 3006 or a Browning BAR in 300 Win Mag, and I've got a much more powerful semi-automatic rifle that the assault weapons ban had nothing to do with. And he couldn't understand. He couldn't... The, the, the two ends of this, this, this string would not come together for him. He, he couldn't get it. And this is the danger. And it's easy to want to just call these people stupid or do what I did and start to get angry and say, you know, you might have time to watch your wife being raped. It won't work. We can't talk to these people this way. If we don't fix this now, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, they will never have to take our guns away. The next two generations will give them away. They won't care. This is why I started Granddaddy's Gun Club. This right here is why I started this. We have to fix this problem, and it has to be done through education. It has to be done through education. We have to educate a young person that sees gunpowder and thinks it will burn them that, no, that doesn't happen. I don't know where you got that idea, but it doesn't hurt you to touch gunpowder. Or the gun won't blow you away. And yes, you can be trained in a relatively short period of time to be able to get the gun out if something happens. Right? There is ways to do that. Yes, guns can be used safely. Because here's what people don't ever realize. Anti-gunners are not actually anti-gun. Because if you ask them, should cops have guns? Oh yeah, cops should have guns. Okay, why? Well, because they need them for their jobs. Okay, why? Because they deal with dangerous people. Okay, you might deal with a dangerous person. Yeah, but I'm not trained. So you're, you're telling me that you can't acquire the training. See, this is the, the kind of conversation you can start to have some productivity with if you're careful and diplomatic. Um, but it's, it's part of the facade of the state. The state has convinced the vast majority of Americans that a, only a licensed school teacher is capable of educating a second grader, okay, at a second grade level. Where the truth is a fourth grader with straight A's should be a damn good second grade teacher. But no, they got to have four-year degree, and, blah, and I know what teachers will say, but there's more to the job than that. You know, there really isn't. There really isn't. Now, there might be more to the job than that that the state has instituted upon you. But the reality is, no, the, the job of a teacher is to educate the student to a level of proficiency. So, yes, a fourth grader with uh, good uh, and proper delivery skills should be more than capable of teaching the second grade. In fact, in America, fourth graders taught third graders and third graders taught second graders and second graders taught first graders in one-room schoolhouses for the first half of our country's existence. So it's not like it's unprecedented. So you might wonder, well, how does that relate to guns? Well, we've done the same thing with guns. See, only the trained professional can actually have a gun, as though the professional training is that advanced. Let me tell you something. I've shot guns with a lot of police officers at ranges and stuff like that. In general, I'm, I'm better at, at weapons handling than most cops that I ever shoot with. I can, I'm more accurate. I'm more consistent. Uh, I'm more fluid because it was important to me. And police officers don't spend that much time training. Especially if they're not part of like a TAC team or something like that, or a SWAT team or a SWAT unit, or a tactical unit. Uh, those guys get, maybe once a year they go to the, to, to the gun range, unless they 
take personal initiative for it. But I think they qualify once a year, you know, and it's it's not that difficult of a qualification. But they they're, they're at least they're trained. They have classes where you talk to these people and go, you know, to have a concealed carry permit and carry a gun in Texas, you have to take a class too. You could take that class. But w- what they've done is it's created this spooky nature, and they've also created this this facade of competency. Um, if you think about U.S. military basic training for the United States Army is eight weeks. About two of that is really focused on weapons training. Two weeks. I mean, if you ask them, so soldiers have guns? Oh, yeah, they got to have them. I mean, it's a job, right? So what the anti-gunner actually is, is very pro-gun as long as the state that controls and owns the guns, which leaves you unarmed in front of the state. And when you talk like that, they think you're talking conspiracy theory. Well, it's not a conspiracy theory. And it's not about some kind of red dawn fantasy of fighting the government and what have you. It's about the emasculation of a society to the point where the society becomes dependent upon the state. It's not just a fear that the state will do something horrible like uh, Auschwitz from from, from uh, World War II. That's not the only concern. The, uh, the, 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 the real primary concern is that the, 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 the citizen becomes dependent upon the state as a fully domesticated being. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to domesticate the human animal to the point of complete complacency and compliance. And, and taking away your ability to defend yourself, and to feed yourself, by the way. No one needs a two two three to shoot a deer, that idiot from New York, right? Yeah, because you don't shoot a deer with a two two three, idiot. Unless you're shooting small deer in Texas and it's a young child with a trophy bottom bear claw, 55 grain. They work pretty good, by the way. Um, but this, this entire facade has created this generation of young people who fear guns and do not understand them. And, and that's what I want to change with Granddaddy's Gun Club. I want to be reaching out through mentorship programs and bringing young people in. Because, and I've said this for eight years. If you want to take someone from anti-gunner to pro-gun, take them to the range. As soon as they actually hold a gun, touch a gun, use a gun, feel a gun, see how it works, understand how it empowers, understand that it is done safety. There's no place more regimented for safety than most gun ranges. I'm not talking about, you know, like a a state game lands range in Pennsylvania, where it's just a bunch of benches and berms and people go do it themselves. But there's a lot of safety orientation there. I'm talking about your typical range that you go pay to shoot at with a range master, et cetera. I mean, it's very strict rules of safety, and you can understand why. When they experience that, or they experience just going with qualified, intelligent adults to shoot, even on, like, their grandpa's back, back 40, and they realize the care, the concern, because... I, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to take someone who's never shot a gun before. Or even if they say they have, if I'm not really calm, we're going to have a safety briefing, and we're going to understand that I'm in charge, and that we're going to do things the right way, and I'm going to control the situation. Now, if I eventually end up, I've got a competent, safe person that's a contemporary, then we can accept that. But until that point, you're going to have to win me over. And it's going to be a little bit of an uphill thing. Just experiencing that starts to make them, these are gun nuts. These guys are gun nuts. And I, I don't know any other way right now to get through to this generation than to do it through community building. So uh, one more time, throwing it out there. The only thing missing from the Granddaddy's Gun Club right now, there's some wallpaper that we're working on to make the site look better, is you. Get over, join Granddaddy's Gun Club, start 
either form a group in your area or find a group that's in your area and join. Let's get the body count enough, up enough so we can actually fulfill what we're looking to do with Grant, to have these meetups, to have these shoots, to have these campfire stories, to, to have people see a gun handed down from a grandfather to a grandchild or from a father to a son, but the gun was the father's grandfather's or from a father, to a grandfather to a grandson. And it was the grandfather's gun, the grandfather's grandfather. Six generations in one moment among like-minded community. I, I, I have realized that we will not win the war for gun rights in America if we continue the course we're on, which is just arguing the facts. Because the facts are meaningless to people who can no longer accept the facts as valid. And it, it, it's not, you know, the old saying about to, to argue with a man who's denounced all reason. It's not that they've denounced reason. They've been educated to the point that what they believe to be true is true for them, even though it's not. And it's very difficult to pull a person out of that. And it's better done, it's absolutely better done through immersion than discussion. So please be part of this, because... I'm telling you right now, America, I'm telling you, in 20 years, if we continue this course, there will be no Second Amendment in this country. There will be The gun rights in this country will be the same as the gun rights in a place like Britain or Australia. Canada will have greater gun rights than we do if we continue the path we're on. Because there will be nobody left to fight. There will be nobody left to hold the ground. There'll be a bunch of old farts. All of us in middle age, 20 years from now, 60, 70, 80 years old, written off as crazy old men and women that want it back like the Wild West days or some nonsense like that. Well, the state arms up and the population is disarmed. We are on that path. I cannot be more clear. That is the path we're on. The government is no longer the biggest threat to gun rights. The people are becoming the threat. And their numbers will grow just because us older people are going to die. And they've been born into a system that's dumbed them down in so many ways. Guns are just one way. But it's it's a great line in the sand. It's certainly worth fighting for. I hope you'll join me in my fight. All right, so my, my closing story today is about the CDC lying. And again, this time not about vaccines, but cholera in Haiti. And it's interesting that there's actually a piece of this article that talks about something we've covered in the history segment. In um, 1854, John Snow, a Victorian anesthesiologist, um, had finally figured out basically that there was some sort of bad water microbes, something in the water causing cholera, and it was traced back to a well, which was basically shut down, and the cholera outbreak in London pretty much petered out to nothing at that point. And it took a while before they figured out how to, you know, to prevent the spread of groundwater of cholera. But it's not a big problem in a lot of the world today because we understand how simple it is to actually control cholera. Well, of course, when the earthquake hit Haiti, the cholera epidemic down there killed more people uh, than the earthquake itself. It's the leading cause of death down there is cholera. And, again, it's a very long article that explains all of this. So I'm just going to leave it to you to read it. I want to give you the Reader's Digest version for time's sake here. 
Um, but if you look at the map of the outbreak of cholera in Haiti, you find the epic, uh, the, 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 the epic center, right? Where it all started. In fact, understand this. We think of Haiti and cholera. Oh, it's Haiti, right? There'd been no cases of cholera in Haiti at all. None. Never had it. Well, turns out that these UN peacekeepers that went in, specifically from Nepal, came in while there was a cholera outbreak going on in Nepal. And there is a picture in this article, a disgusting stagnant pool that is full of the feces and urine from the peacekeepers uh, group from Nepal that has their little base a few yards from where this pool of cesspool of shit is. So what actually happened is the Nepalese UN soldiers came in, created this catastrophe admits the catastrophe, dumped cholera into Haiti during a time where it was really in bad shape for it to happen. And even five years now into it, basically Haiti is still dealing with this. And it's going to take massive amounts of work to get rid of it. But the CDC has lied about this. And they continue to lie about this. And our government is representing the United Nations against the Haitian citizens who want this fixed in courts of law. It's not surprising to me, but it's just another example of the fact that the, the we, we have certain government agencies that people tend to believe aren't going to lie to us. That even the people that overall distrust government and distrust politicians... Well, the guys in the white lab coats don't lie. It's science, right? Well, this is a perfect example of you can't just trust these people. Since this all started, to put it in perspective, the official count is 9,265 people are dead and 775,000 people have been made sick. And, and many people think that number is actually lower than the reality. And it's actually pretty obvious if you read this whole article, but... This is something interesting. Basically, you can find where this all started. You can see it spread through the, the map that the CDC itself is, is put out. And, you know, they basically said, why have you not tried to find out what where this started? A spokesperson for the CDC says in an email that the Haitian map was devised, quote, to optimize response activities on the ground, end quote. Mapping the origin of the epidemic, she says, quote, was not germane to the purpose, end quote. Now, if you, if you look at this map, it becomes so obvious where this whole ground zero component is, and it's right where the Nepalese battalion uh, was based. And there's this giant steaming pile of Nepalese feces in the middle of Haiti, contaminating the groundwater. So not only did we screw up when we went to Haiti and we gave the, the, the Red Cross, what is it, $350 million was given to the Red Cross. They did almost nothing there. Apparently we, we infected them with cholera. When I say we, of course, we are not Nepal, but we have, we have backed the UN in this. Do you know what it's going to cost to fix this? About $220 billion to actually fix the infrastructure in Haiti. I know what people will say. Well, but see, it's Haiti. They had all these problems, but they didn't have cholera. We didn't have cholera there. So basically, 
the CDC has just decided to tell you a completely different story. Oh, it was the earthquake, and it just happened, and we don't really know how, and sometimes this stuff happens. And they know. It's not like the guy that wrote this article is a genius or something like that. So my question to you is simply, if the CDC would lie about this, what else might they lie about? What might the Food and Drug Administration lie about? Do you trust anybody in government anymore? If so, why? I'm not saying that everything they say is a lie, but why do you just implicitly trust? And, and why do you have so, such perception bias to implicitly trust these people that you will rationalize on their behalf? That's what I see going on. One of the people that emailed me recently about vaxxed, sent me this thing that says, you're wrong, there have been studies done where they've actually compared vaccinated and non-vaccinated children. He sends me this study from Africa. And, and the study actually examined mortality rates, not autism. Well, that's not what the question was. So I want to ask you again, why has our CDC never done a study comparing vaccinated versus unvaccinated children and autism rates? And I got a, just a thing to throw out there for you. Find me an Amish kid with autism. Find me one. Go find me one. Just saying. Just think about that. With that, we're ready to wrap up today. And I have a good song for you today. Uh, from the Doobie Brothers. This song actually was released a month before I was born, or actually like three weeks before I was born. It was released in July of 1972. And it was really, I think, the Doobie's first really, really big hit. Listen to the music. Now, why am I playing this song today? Well, number one, it's a Monday, and people are kind of like, well, that's Monday, Monday, Monday. Uh. So this is just a feel-good song. This song does feel good. It makes you happy. And I just wanted to give you that today, make you happy. But if you listen to the song, what it's really about is how music actually can make you happy and that we can find reasons to be happy. And we can, in fact, musicians are people that can make people happy. And I want you to think about all of these things that we talked about today that aren't so good. 1972, America was not a good time. We were toward the end of the Vietnam War. We were treating our veterans like crap. We were in the middle of a recession. The country had completely lost faith in itself. And it only got worse after 72. You know, it really did. The 70s were a bad decade. But yet some of the greatest music came out of the 70s. And I think it's because our emotional well-being is something that we do control. And music's one way I think we're able to do that. I think that people are more themselves when they're listening to, playing, making, singing along with, enjoying music, than we are most other times in our lives. And just think about that. And uh, listen to the song here at the end of today's show. With that, before I play it for you, I'd like to remind you, if you like the work I did, you, you can help support the show by joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And if you want to support us without joining the brigade or you just want to do more and you want to do it in an easy, painless way, whenever you shop on Amazon, go to tspaz.com, tspaz.com. That's right, tspaz, t-s-p-a-z.com, and you will just end up at Amazon. You'll type in one less letter, do your shopping, and hey, you'll help support the show. How awesome is that? Doesn't get any easier than that. And uh, also, if you want to support the whole community by doing business within the community, uh, check out the TSP Business Directory at the website or just go to tspbiz.com. And today's supporting member is Ortwain International, a certified factory armorer 
serving civilian law enforcement and military markets. They have law enforcement equipment offices in Michigan, Oregon, and Washington. Visit their website through the link on the TSP Business Directory. And, of course, I will have them in today's show notes as well. So with that, ready to sign off to you. Listen to the music today. Enjoy it. And realize that even though we have a lot of tough stuff coming, there are a lot of things we can do about it by building resiliency into our lives that even though I do believe if we stay on the path that we're on, we are going to lose our rights as gun owners in this country, that that is going to happen. It doesn't mean we have to stay on the path. We can do something about it. We can, do so. we can stop waving the foam finger saying we're number one and thinking it'll never happen. We can realize it's a problem. We can do something about it. Even though we have situations where you know, the people in charge are not looking out for you, they do not have your best interests at heart, The way they feel about it is it takes thousands of you to fire them, and then they'll just get a better job anyway as a lobbyist. Even though that's the case, that doesn't mean we can't do something about our own lives and take control of our own lives. But every once in a while, just let go, listen to some great old music, and ask yourself a question. Why doesn't anybody make music like this anymore? With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to make that better, that, how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.